Well, as always, we're so grateful to be here together, aren't we? What a joy and privilege we have. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Like I said, the hardest chapter of the Bible, but the payoff is incredible. The truths here are so definitive of the grace of God, the mercy of God, His love for us, that if you can work through this and submit to it, you are going to be enamored like you never have been before at the grace and mercy and love of God. Let me read to you our text, Romans 9, and today we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13. Romans 9, 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named." This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. But this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of God. Here is something that I know. I am prone to wonder. I'm prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to deviate. I'm prone to innovate. I'm prone to idolize things that are not God, even to the point of worship. Even as a believer, though I have a new nature, there is that residue of the old man. There is that memory of the flesh. There is that remaining desire to do what is wrong, to create idols. So I know I'm prone to wonder, and I know this as well, that you're the same as me. We're all prone to wonder, aren't we? So for the sake of my own heart and for the sake of your heart as well, my whole objective in ministry is to convince and motivate and invigorate us to embrace and worship the God of the Bible. In fact, this is what Paul told Timothy, right? He said, 1 Timothy Chapter 4, beginning of verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation and to the teaching. That's the preaching moment, the public reading, the encouragement and explanation of the Word of God. He says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which is given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that they, many will see your progress. Then he says, Keep close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Of course, by save there, he means not just the moment of salvation, but he means sanctify, grow, mature. I'm sure he believed that Timothy was already saved at that point. He had already repented of his sin, had faith in Christ. But I think Paul meant you're going to grow, you're going to mature. This is the way you grow and mature is by giving the people the God of the Bible, by immersing yourself in the truth, and reading those truths to the people, and teaching the people these things, and applying it to their hearts, that is the way that you will save and sanctify those who listen as well as yourself. 
So we're all in this together. You're just like me. You, you battle the flesh. You battle the pursuit of false gods in high places. Everyone's like this. How else do you explain people's enamor of imaginative, contradictory, unbiblical depictions of heaven, which are so popular today, uh, pictures of God, of books and movies and sermons that come under the title of Christian but have nothing or very little to do with the God of the Bible and even contradict the God of the Bible. The pursuit of those false gods leads to, leads to vanity. You may find some level of emotional buzz, some level of fulfillment, but that always passes. It's fleeting, and it's subtly drawing you away from your first love, which is the God of Scripture. So my whole ministry, the whole purpose that I felt called to be a preacher, the whole purpose I feel like my job is to, is to gear our worship toward the God of the Bible, to gear my sermons toward the God of the Bible. It's geared toward helping us discern truth, and that's not just truth versus falsehood, but truth versus near truth, or truth versus truth and mixture, uh, truth and falsehood mixed together. I want us to be discerning. I want us to know the God of the Bible, to identify false gods, temptations. And more than any of that, I want you to fall in love with Jesus. Not a Jesus depicted by popular Christianity, but a Jesus as depicted by Scripture. This book is where we find the only full and fully sufficient depiction of God. Well, listen carefully. That, that means there's going to be a little bit of pain involved, isn't there? There's going to be a little bit of conflict. I'm, I'm going to introduce to you, as we study Scripture, we're going to come to passages like this. We're going to come to, to phrases and words and doctrines like this that may run contrary to maybe what we've always thought or believed down deep in our hearts. I'm going to introduce to your life these things, and because we're always rebuked when we come to Scripture, even if it's a small way, we're always shown how we fail, how we have fallen short, how we've worshipped something that's not entirely the God of the Bible. I think about Isaiah, I think about Rachel, the story of Rachel and her idols from her childhood. She had these idols and she couldn't part ways with them. And, and finally, when she's confronted with truth, she has this, there's this moment of pain where she has to realize, I, I have to choose. I, I cannot continue to worship this and worship the God of the Bible. And there was a sense that she was abandoning, abandoning the God of her youth. But I want you to see this. If the God or gods you worshiped as a child is not clearly the biblical God, that's not God. No matter how warm and filling and how much you appreciated the ministry of this person or that person, if they did not preach to you the God of the Bible, then you were not worshiping the God of the Bible. So there may be some level of repentance, some level of pain involved in, in coming into contact. That's why I mentioned Isaiah. Isaiah comes and meets God in the temple, and there's this, this moment of pain. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. How can I be the one? That's your follower. That's your messenger. There had to be a painful singeing of the lips with the coal, right? There had to be this moment of, of himself divorcing himself from the gods of his past, even if he thought it was the God of the Bible. Once he comes in true contact with the God of the Word, there was a little bit of pain involved. 
Well, there's probably no place in the Bible that shatters the American Christian idea of God, shatters our pride, shatters our sense of self-determination, shatters our sense of, of individuality than Romans chapter 9. And no doctrine of the Bible that does this more, I believe, than the idea that God has the freedom to choose whom He will save. His plan sits in authority over our plan and our decisions. His plan sits over even our responsibility. We have clearly articulated. We do have responsibility according to the moral will of God. We, we should repent. We should respond. We should evangelize and pray and seek God. But in the end, we have to admit that it is all God who is sovereign over all. All right, before we jump in, I, I do want to show you how this chapter is set up. I haven't really gone through the chapter to show you how it's set up, so uh, I've spent some weeks, a couple weeks, laying some foundation similar to what Paul did there in the first section, uh, but I do want to show you how this, this chapter is laid out and uh, where we're going to go the next couple of weeks as we, as we look at this. At the beginning of the chapter, like I said, there's this introduction, the basic idea uh, uh, is laid out there. Paul uh, gives us his, his heart, his character. Uh, the man that God had entrusted with this truth, this message that God was giving to Paul to give to us. And then we look at today, and we've already read it, the, the passage today. It's, it's stated pretty clearly here, God's choice to save someone. It's not based in their obedience. It's not based in their personal righteousness. It's not based in their decision, whether it's in the future or in the past. It's completely detached from human activity. It's not their religiosity, it's not their genetics, it's completely detached from human will. It is based in God's sovereign right to save people. And then what Paul does in this passage that we're looking at today, Paul illustrates that truth with two biblical stories. And that's what we're looking at today, divine election, stated, and then illustrated. Divine election, stated, and illustrated. And this coheres perfectly with what we read and studied some years ago in Romans 1 to 4. I mentioned this at the beginning, but Romans 1 to 4, it pounds into, this, pounds into us this idea that we cannot be saved by our own works, by our own deeds, by our own righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It is monopoly money, as I mentioned. Religiosity, genetics, church attendance, these things are all useless when it comes to saving a soul. The Spirit must do a work on the heart of man before that man is even able to see their spiritual need and is even able to repent in his faith and respond to Christ. He has to love us first before we're even able to respond in love to him. And that's the summary verse there. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So the whole, obje the whole objective of that verse, and you can't argue with just plain English there. It says the same thing in the Greek, by the way. It, just the plain reading of the text is that Paul is trying to divorce God's actions of saving a person with anything that person does. He is showing us that this is part of God's sovereign plan. It's because of him that he's done this. Don't have to jump through any kind of weird linguistic hoops. The plain reading of the Scripture tells us God's sovereign choice to save is totally unhitched from human activity. And you can't say, well, God chooses people based upon him knowing what they will do later on in history. 
Well, that is not, that's not what's said here. That's clearly not what Paul is saying. Paul is divorcing these two things, human action and God's plan to save. You can't tinker with this. This is all part of God's purpose alone. It's brought only into existence. A soul is saved only by God's effectual calling. Again, we do not deny that human is, humans are responsible. We must repent. We must have faith. As Christians, we must evangelize, tell people the gospel. This is how God saves, but this is how God's plan that's already put into place, how it is affected. So that's the section we're looking at today. The rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 14, is made up of three defenses of that basic idea. So he gives us the, the idea, and he illustrates it in our section today. And then later on, he defends that position that he has about how God saves a soul. Each defense is roughly built around that phrase, what shall we say then? You see it there in verse 14, what shall we say then? Because he knows most people are not going to naturally believe that. And we know that in our own hearts as well. I didn't believe that. Many years of being a Christian, I didn't believe that. I thought in the end, God just would have left it up to me. I thought in the end, it was my decision that God responded to, not his decision that I responded to. That's what I thought. And so Paul anticipates that kind of response, and he, and he answers probably the three most basic uh, responses to the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation. Now, that's the rest of chapter 6. You see in verse 19, you will say then to me, say to me then, and finally verse 30, what shall we say then? So he, he identifies those three defenses and argues against them in each one of those sections, and that's what we're going to do uh, in the ensuing weeks. Will this chapter answer every question you have about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? No way. No way. But it's likely that if you have objected to this doctrine, at least it'll be partially answered. And, and at least, at the very least, it'll call you to say, submit to the Word of God, right? Just submit, just believe, trust in the Word of God, trust in what God has very clearly said. You won't figure it all out. That We are finite people. Our minds are infinitely small to an infinite creator, right? We can never understand his mind. And so my hope is that you will gain a picture of God that will make you worship him, rejoice in him, understand his love like you never have, that you'll come in here with louder praises, that you'll come in here, you'll come to your morning Bible study and open that Bible with more eagerness and more desire and more gratitude than you ever have before. My hope is consistent with Paul. He... he said all this, and then he gets into some other things in chapters 10 and 11, but the whole section completes there in chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who is a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. My prayer is that you'll rejoice with Paul as we study this passage. It'll, it'll create in you a gratitude to God for what he accomplished, not because of anything you are, anything you've done, but completely because of his grace, completely because of his love. The, the fundamental purpose here is not to fully comprehend the mind of God. It is simply to believe him and to worship him, to rejoice in his love of you and not to rejoice in your love of him, to celebrate his love, not to accentuate your love and your activity. 
to increase God and to decrease yourself. And the more you do that, ladies and gentlemen, the more you realize in your life the purpose for which God has created humans, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. All right, today we have that basic idea that that God chooses people whom he will save, and that choice is entirely independent of anything that humans have done. It is totally based on his decision, on his plan, on his sovereign will. That idea is stated, as I said in verse 11, then it is illustrated with two uh, two supporting biblical stories. If you are a note taker, you can put this down. Number one, salvation begins with God's will alone. Salvation begins with God's will alone. Now, again, we do not deny the human duty to choose. We have a responsibility. We call people to respond to the gospel. The gospel, if you think about it, the gospel is a command. The command to have faith. It's the command to repent. It's the moral will of God, and God calls everyone to do this, and God wants everyone to do this according to his moral will. And moral will, as we learned last time, moral will implies human responsibility. We have a duty to respond to God. We should repent. We should have faith. We should choose God. What Paul is explaining to us in this passage is that any choice of God that we make is predicated by something God does. There's something that comes before it. And I think any Christian, if he's really honest with it, down deep in his heart, he cannot deny that. You you can't say, ultimately, God, it's me who chose you. No Christian would say that. Every Christian would say, ultimately, God, you did a work in, in my heart to such an extent that I responded in faith. It even says in Ephesians chapter 2 that That faith is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Even my faith, even me choosing God, is a gift that he gave to me. This is something I pray almost every Sunday. Maybe you've picked up on it. I pray almost every Sunday for lost people that I know are watching or in our congregation. I pray for people who have not yet had faith truly and surrendered everything and repented and followed Christ. I pray for them that God would grant them faith and repentance. Because I know they don't have it in themselves. It's not natural for human beings to do this. God has to do a work inside of them. Ye must be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, something has got to happen on the inside, on a spiritual level, that only God can do. Paul is not talking about our responsibility here. We are responsible to respond and do this. Paul is talking about what God does before all that. And what God does is completely apart from our personal righteousness because we had none. We established that. It wasn't based in our genetics. Many Jews believe that way. God shows no partiality, Acts 10.34 says. And we see this in the very first few verses of our section here. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. Verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Clearly he's saying there's There's genetic Israel, there's ethnic Israel, but there's also spiritual Israel. And not everyone who's ethnic Israel is in spiritual Israel, and not everyone who's in spiritual Israel is necessarily ethnic Israel. That's what he's saying. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham. I think almost every one of us, if not every one of us in here, we don't have any, I don't have any, I don't think that I have any 
Jewish ancestors. We're not Israel. We're not descendants of Abraham, genetically speaking, but, but Abraham is my father, my father in faith. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, the Word of God, he's saying, the Word of God is not failing by God not just saving all Jewish people because they're descendants of Abraham. The Word of God is being fulfilled because God is creating a new Israel. God is creating a new people. And there are children of Abraham that are not genetically His children. And not all genetic children of Abraham are truly His children. To become a spiritual child of Abraham, to become a spiritual child of God, it has to happen by the promise, the, the Word of God. The choice or the purpose of God, the spiritual offspring of Abraham are not created genetically. They're created by the Word of God. Again, there's that song. Remember, we used to sing it as kids, Father Abraham. Right? I'm not going to ask us to do, up, do the hand motions. But we understand. I have many sons, and I am one of them. I'm not even Jewish, but I'm a child of Abraham. Why? Because God's Word is being fulfilled. He has said something. He's decreed something. He's done something on my behalf and brought me into the offspring, spiritual offspring of Abraham. Now, this would have been very difficult for people to hear. I think it's difficult for people to hear today even. I think people feel like this violates God's word somehow. They're supposed to be autonomous from God. It violates maybe their sense of individuality, their, their sense of choice. They feel like they've been making all these decisions through life. They don't feel like they're even the decision to to come to Christ, they don't feel like they, their arm was twisted. Jews may have thought, hey, this is, this is a violation of God. made all these, these promises to Israel. He did all these things. He did these things for Israel. And doesn't this violate God's Word? And Paul says, by no means. The Word of God has not failed. God has, is fulfilling it, but not in a way that you expect it. God is fulfilling it in a way that glorifies Himself. Verse 6, it is not as though the Word has failed. Verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted offspring. So he makes this very clear statement. It detaches God's choice of people to be saved apart from anything they've done, good or bad. God does this completely of his own free will. So then Paul seeks to establish this by two illustrations from the Old Testament. Let's look at these two illustrations. Point number two, God chose Isaac. You can say God chose Isaac in this way. So he's, he's going to give us some information, some Bible information to demonstrate what he's saying is true, that God's activity to save a person, to make them a child of God, is completely separate from what they do. It is something that predates and predicates what they do. If a person repents and is saved, it's simply because God has done a work sovereignly, and it's completely of His grace. So here's the evidence. You can get the whole story of, of Isaac and Abraham, or Abram, Genesis 12 to 21, and you're familiar with a lot of these things. God came to this elderly man, this older man named Abram, and his wife Sarai. Of course, later he would call them, change their names to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham struggled with this idea that he would have, they would have children because they had gotten 
older. Sarah had long since passed her baby-making days. And uh, God mentioned this, and Sarah even, we find out, laughed, and that's where the name Isaac comes from. So Sarah agreed, this, this is impossible, this is not going to happen. Why don't you, Abraham, why don't we make a child in the natural way? Why don't you just take one of my maids, Hagar, and, uh, you know, you guys can have a baby, we'll call it mine. Well, you can imagine how that worked out. Not so good. Disaster. In fact, we read about the destruction and family tensions that that caused, as it would cause even today. They had this baby named Ishmael, and all this trouble ensued. About 10 years of trouble, actually. A little over a decade later, Abraham finally repented of that and said, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. I trust you, God. You said you would give Sarah and me a child, and I believe you in this. And in her 90s, older than any one of you here, in her 90s, she had a baby, miraculously. She conceived, gave birth to a baby named Isaac, and this was the child of God's promise. Now, look at verse 6 again, halfway through. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, because there is offspring through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. The child of promise had been chosen. That was established in the, in the annals of God's sovereign plan before time began. He had already, wrapped the, he had already mapped this all out and, and began executing this. It was the one miraculously conceived, the, the, the one who was born of the womb of Sarah. It was Isaac. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It wasn't what Abraham could produce in the flesh. If it was something Abraham, if Abraham getting with some girl was the way that the child could be made, the child of promise could be made, then Abraham could take a little bit of credit. He's like, you know, I'm like 90-something years old. Not bad for a 99-year-old guy. He could take a little bit of credit. God said, no, you're not getting any of the credit for the salvation of souls and the promise. This is going to be all me. It's going to be a miracle. You're not, you cannot produce the, a son of promise, a child of God, by human effort. He's, again, divorcing human effort from the creation of the child of promise. He's showing us this is completely separate. Ishmael was not a chosen child. And, and if we do some genetic work, we find out Ishmael, his descendants became essentially the Arabs who fought the Israelites even to the day. They became antagonists to the Israelites from today, even today. So you can't just do this out of your flesh. This is something God has to do. Verse 8 again, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise. It's not people, it's not people, people don't become children of God by willpower and determination and effort, works, they become children of God by the promise of God. Here's the standard. This is the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Children of promise, children of the true covenant are not produced by man's effort. They are produced by God's choice, by God's activity. Every physical child of Abraham was not automatically chosen. It's not works. It's not genetics. 
In uh, verse 9, Paul fast-forwards to after the birth of Ishmael when God repeated the promise to Abraham and gives the promise again. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. In other words, he's saying the first son you had, not the chosen one, not the promised one, not a child of God. That person's being a child of God, a child of promise is... It hinges on God's choice, not on man's activity. This point is getting pounded in and illustrated. Our God is not a reactionary God. He's not watching to see what all the humans are going to do so that he knows what he's supposed to do. That would deny God the very thing that some people claim they have, and that is free will. God just sort of has to respond and do whatever. We follow whatever we do. It's not the kind of God I want to worship, is it? He is the originator of choice. He's the originator of the plan, the promise. We cannot produce children of God by our works, by our efforts. New birth is by the Holy Spirit alone. And this is why I think everybody, every Christian does this. This is why we pray before we go witness to somebody, right? Even if you're very Arminian or grew up in a you know, Catholic church or Methodist church, and you have that way of thinking of work, salvation, even if you grew up that way, there's a part of you that, that, that knows the truth here that says, God, you got to do a work. you got to do something. I've done all I can do. I can give a perfect gospel presentation, but you have to do something on their hearts. We learned this in the parable of the sower and the seeds, right? He doesn't concern himself with condition of the soil. That's the heart of man. He doesn't concern himself with that. In fact, Jesus told another parable about the sower who went, he sowed the seed, and what did he do? He went and slept. God is the one who gives the increase. First Corinthians chapter 3, Paul planted, Apollos water, but God gives the increase. Pastor Tommy Nelson, whom we've had here preach, he said, every human being is designed by God as either a moth or a cockroach. Aren't very great options, but that's the options that he said. A moth or a cockroach. You remember this? What does a cockroach do when you flip on the light? He runs away. He scatters. What does a moth do when you flip on the light? He flies to the light. So whether you're a preacher uh, preaching on Sunday morning or whether you're a, a layperson simply sharing the gospel with someone, your job is not to save anyone or create them or design them or fashion them as a moth or a cockroach. You just flip the light on. And they either run from that truth or they run to that truth. God has created something in their heart. God decides who will fly to the light or flee from the light. So we trust God with that. We share the gospel. We're faithful to do this. We know this is part of the way that God saves people. We trust in Him. We believe in Him. We don't understand how it all works, how a person can choose God, and yet God has chosen them before that, how that feels volitional and willful when they do this. We don't understand how a lot of works, but we trust God. And we give him the glory that if I chose God, it is not because I'm just better than the people who didn't choose God. I chose God because he did something in my heart, something that I could not do, something that I don't deserve, something that I did not earn. He did something that I could never accomplish, and that is new birth of my heart. All right, Paul gives one more illustration about this truth. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As is written, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Point number three, God chose Jacob. Same truth. New illustration. God chose Jacob. The story of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, you, you may know this, but Isaac ended up getting a wife. Rebekah was her name, the name of all wonderful wives. The one that uh, they had twins, the one that came out first was Esau. The second was Jacob. Neither of these fellows were good guys. Esau was a hunter, a woodsman, sort of visceral guy. He's the kind of guy that would give up a lot just to fulfill his physical desires. Jacob, his, even his name means supplanter or usurper, and this is because he was grabbing on to the, the heel of Esau when they came out of the womb. It even means thief. And, and, and Jacob, by the way, we don't read, there's not much good about Jacob early on. Later on, when God calls him and commissions him, but early on, we don't see much good about Jacob. He just seems like he's living up to his name. It's kind of a lesson to us. Don't name your child thief. He may live up to it. He lived up to that name. Both of them pretty bad guys. And the question about which one whom God would choose, the question is not, which one of these guys is more righteous? Which one is more spiritual? Which one of these two is, is the better of the twos? Uh, better of the two? Who, who of these two makes the best decisions? God says, I'll pick the one, I'll save the one, I'll choose the one who seems to be a little bit better. The question is not why God would choose one and to save and not choose the other. The question is, why would, choose, why would God choose either one of them? They're both pretty bad guys. I mean, why would God choose a fleshly guy, and why would God choose a thief? When people read this passage for the first time, Romans 9, sometimes they ask sort of incredulously, why would God choose some people for heaven, and He choose some others for hell? That's not the question. The question is, why would God choose any one of us? We're all rotten thieves and supplanters and fleshly, visceral, sinful people. People say it's unfair, it's unjust that God would choose some for heaven and some for hell. It's unjust that God wouldn't just damn us all to hell because we all deserve it. That's the question. When you, when you say it's not fair, it's not just, what you're saying is there are some people who deserve it, who've been good enough, who are religious enough, born in the right families, may it never be. That's the prideful position. The humble position says, God, the fact that you would choose any, of this, any person, any single individual to be saved of this rotten human race is a testimony to your love, to your grace, to your mercy, and Lord, I rejoice in your love and great mercy because we did nothing. We just stole and fulfilled our fleshly desires. That's the humble position, not the prideful position. 
The humble position says, I realize, God, your choice of me is not based in anything I've done. It is solely and fully of your grace alone. Nothing else. I am no different than any sinner who, sinner who ends up in hell. No different. I deserve the same death. I deserve the same eternal punishment. That's the humble position. And you fall on your face and you worship God. You thank Him profusely because He did something that was not based in anything that you did. In fact, all you did is the sinning. Someone came up to a famous preacher, I forget who it was, but came up to a famous preacher who had preached on this passage and said, oh, pastor, I, I, uh, I see what you're saying. I did my part and God did his. And he said, well, I'm not sure if you understand. He said, uh, yeah, I did the sin and he did the saving. That's right, isn't it? That's all we can truly produce. According to the early chapters of Romans, the only thing we're capable before salvation is filthy rag type works. Verse 11 identifies this, though though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that what? God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. It's so plain, folks, you don't need to do some weird linguistic backflips and technical things here. Clearly, Paul is detaching God's choice from human activity. kind of mentioned this earlier, but you know, it's always interesting to me when people insist on this idea that's not found in the Bible, this idea of free will, they say something like, in order for our love of God to be genuine, in order for us not to be robots, we have to be completely free when we choose God with no influence. But it doesn't dawn on them when they do that. Basically, what they're saying is, God has no free will. They're saying, God has to respond to me. He can't choose. I do the choosing. It's all up to me. All boils down to me. Does the Bible teach, generally speaking, does the Bible teach it is God's, that it is God who is free to choose? Or does it teach it is man who is free? Man in his lost position, is he generally depicted as someone who's free and neutral and unbiased? You know, maybe in the Garden of Eden. And that is true, by the way. Doctrinally speaking, Adam and Eve did have free will, but it was lost. It was lost when they sinned. They died. Their ability to act freely was dead. Then they could only choose what was wrong unless God came along and did something for them, which, in fact, God did, right? In the Garden of Eden, He provided a sacrifice, a a clothing of righteousness, and they were saved. The answer is clear from the Bible that God is the one who's sovereign, not man. And I'll just say this. If I'm a robot... What a wonderfully made robot I am, capable of love, joy, emotions, passion, desire, happiness, worship. A a robot that does have a level of volition and willpower, right? We do have willpower. The Bible doesn't teach man has no will. We're not like robots that are programmed on a computer. God does give us volition. Maybe even if my life is predetermined after all... I'm the happiest robot of all. I get to rejoice in fellowship. In fact, this is what God has created humans for, to worship Him, to fellowship with Him, to be with Him, to enjoy His presence 
forever. All right, before we close, I do have to say something about this last verse, right? This last verse is particularly troubling. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, this is not just Paul's interpretation of the things that he just said. This is actually a quote, Malachi 1, 2, and 3. God is speaking through Malachi and says this very thing. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This kind of, this depiction of God is troubling, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I grew up in Sunday school that said nothing about God's hate. In fact, I was taught God loves everyone. And it's kind of like the phrase, we're all God's children. That phrase is in that Christmas song. I forget which one it is. We're all God's children, and that makes everything right. The, The phrase by the liberals of the early 20th, late 19th and early 20th century, they would say, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. We're all God's children and God is our father. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? No. Read these verses. Not all are the children of God who are Abraham's offspring. God has to do something. Well, how do we understand this phrase? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And how do we understand other phrases? For God so loved the world... How do we understand this? Does God love everybody? Or does He only love His elect chosen people? The answer is yes. Both. God's love is complex. Isn't your love complex? Isn't it multifaceted? Let me ask you a question. Do you love the children of this church? Of course you do. Do you love the children of the world? Of course you do. But do you love your children? You better believe it, right? Your love is not just one color. It's just the same for every child. Your love is multifaceted. You may have a general, generic love for all children. I do, especially babies. Becky always calls me grandpa. In fact, my daughters have started calling me grandpa because I love little videos of babies doing funny things, usually if it's with a puppy or something. I love those videos, and I show my girls these videos all the time that people send me of of babies and puppies. I love babies. They're so cute to me. I love children. You say, Pastor John, we couldn't tell. You got five kids. When are you going to stop? I love kids. I love babies. I love all children. But I love my children. I love, in a very particular way, in a very uh, strong way, the children of the members of this church. I do. I have, a, I have a different love for them than I have for the love of all the children of the world. I have a very special love for them. But I also have a very special love for my children. God's love in the Bible is described in, in multifaceted ways. It's complex, much like our love is complex, only on a much greater scale, right? There is a sense in which you would say God loves everyone, including Esau, including Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, there is a sense in which God loves all people in the world. His moral will is not that anybody should perish, but that everyone come to repentance. There is a general love of God for the world. This is how you can explain what's called common grace, how God gives rain for the farmers, that would be an important thing, gives rain both on the just and the unjust. Even evil people have joyous lives They can enjoy some fellowship. It's not like their life is just miserably cursed by God at all times. Jesus depicted this general love all throughout his ministry, right? He, He had compassion on crowds of people who would later 
be yelling out, and he knew later would be crying out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Jesus had a general love. But there's also a sense in which Jesus had a very special electing love for his children, the children that God had given him, much like you might have love for your children. And that love is so strong and so powerful, and you you can think of it even as your own children. That love is so strong and so powerful and so amazing and so rich. That love, compared to any kind of love you would have for any other child, it's almost the opposite. It's that far away. I believe this is precisely what God was saying through Malachi. Yes, there's a sense in which I love the whole world, but when it comes to my children, whom I have chosen, who I am working in, my children... It's so far different from the love that I have for the world, it's almost opposite. I love, I hate. It's completely different. It's a totally different category. I love my children. This is what God, I believe, is saying in Malachi and then through Paul here. There is that common grace. There is that common love for all the world. But there also is this unconditional, absolutely working love that God has for his children that is unique to his children. Compared to that generic love, it's almost the opposite. In fact, you would say, since in fact he must act in love eventually by punishing all injustice, and in order to act in love towards his children, he must punish all injustice and create a world of perfect, absolute justice, and in order to do that, he must destroy those who are workers of evil and iniquity. And he has to do that out of love. All right, now we're going to finish here. This leaves us a little bit dangling. A lot of questions probably start to pop up about this time. seems to make us feel like maybe people don't die for sin, but they die because of God's capricious choice. That is not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. People do die for their sin. And Paul's going to, the rest of the chapter, he's going to identify some sort of common objections to this idea of God's sovereignty and salvation. There's that first defense, verse 14 to 18, second defense, 19 to 24, and third defense, 25 to 33. Some of you may be here this morning, perhaps watching. Maybe you're asking this question, how do I know if I'm God's elect? How do I know know if I'm a child of God, if I've been chosen? If, if it's just up to God, how do I know? Um, a famous preacher by the name of Adrian Rogers, he wasn't a big fan of this doctrine, didn't talk about it a lot, but he did say something I thought was great. He said, the elect are the whosoever wills. If you have faith and repent, you're the elect. You don't have to walk away with doubt and frustration and I don't know whether I am or I'm not. If you have faith, you have surrendered everything, you repent, you become a Christ follower, you don't have to wonder. You know that that desire to have faith and repent is only something that God has given to you. Every good and perfect gift comes from God above, from the Father of lights. You don't have to worry about this. And so what I would say to you, have faith, live by that faith, repent, surrender, follow Christ, live by that. And you can, you can live your life joyously, providing glory to God, joyously demonstrating the truths, even these truths of God in your own life. Let's pray that all of us would do that 
even now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray that we would magnify you in all that we do. We pray that we would bless you and glorify you and richly rejoice in you because ultimately it was you who saved us. Lord, it's hard for us to wrap our mind. We confess it is hard for us to wrap our minds around human responsibility, our responsible our responsibility to respond and have faith and repent and our activity, it's involved. Surely it's a part of it that here in these passages you teach that any action we have is simply because you've given us this. And so we give you all the glory, even for the faith that you've placed in our hearts, even for the desire to follow you, to repent. Lord, we give you the glory for all these things. And Lord, I pray again, as we always pray, we pray that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who has not repented, I pray for that person, Lord, that you would call them to salvation, compel them to love and worship you. And Lord, give them that confidence that if they come to you broken for their sin, trusting in Christ alone, that he paid the penalty for that and provide the righteousness whereby they can have a relationship with you. I pray that they, by trusting in Christ and surrendering everything, Lord, they would trust in you for salvation today make known to their hearts that you have chosen them even this moment. And Lord, I pray the opposite. I pray that if those there are people here who don't repent, who don't want to have faith, we, who re- resist and reject and, and have the attitude of resistance toward the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that they would bear with them this idea that it's very possible, possibly even likely, that they are not one of your children. They are a cockroach to run away from the light. And they'll bear the punishment prepared for Satan and his devils. Lord, help them to come to you. Help them to fear these, this end. Help them to turn to you in faith. All of us need to live by this faith and rejoice in you, celebrating you for all that you've done for us. It's for your glory that we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.